Welcome to Two Girls and a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm your co-host, Anne, coming to you from whatever the weather is like in New York on whatever day in whatever month this is. And I'm Drea, and I like my wine like I like my plants, fresh and rooted in complex dirt. So we want to start off today by really just offering up our sincere thanks to everyone who listened to our first episode and has reached out. We've been overwhelmed by the responses and the encouragement, especially since we're both anxiety-ridden dorks. So we appreciate you learning with us and... Hey, we make the mistakes, so you don't have to. Since we've made it to our second episode, we thought we would celebrate by debuting our new segment, Cheers and Jeers. And so we're going to start each episode with some things that we're cheering and some things that we're jeering each week. So Anne, what are your cheers and jeers? Well, first and foremost, cheers to you, Drea, for getting the vaccine. Uh, I'm so excited that you're getting your second dose this weekend. I can't wait for you to be fully safe. I'm really excited for you and excited that uh, the end of the pandemic is somewhere around the corner, just over the rainbow. And then I am jeersing to that shitbag Andrew Cuomo. He is the worst. He is awful. We've always known he's awful, and he just continues to prove it. And also, jeers to New York landlords. I read this week that the neighborhoods that have been hit hardest by the coronavirus have the greatest eviction rates. So, fuck you guys. God, mine seems so dumb now. But I would like to cheers grilled cheese sandwiches because I would like to jeers the shit out of the wine that betrayed me this last week. It was rude. It was uncalled for and it can fuck right off. (laughs) What happened? What was this wine? You know, I just had, I just had a little socially distant soiree with some of my gal pals and one thing led to another and the next thing you know we're opening a bottle of wine that has Elvis's face on it and let's just be honest no good's ever going to come of that so cheers to you Elvis wine and cheers to that grilled cheese that brought me back from the dead so there we go Okay, so we promised you that this in this podcast, there would be shenanigans. And we also promised you that we would learn something. And this time, we're going to learn a little bit about ourselves with a BuzzFeed quiz. So today, we're taking the quiz, what wine matches your personality? And if you're playing along at home, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to read questions. I am going to record Anne's answers. I will record Andrea's answers. And we've got the big reveal. So let's do this. All right. Question one. Which word would you use to describe yourself? Are you flirty, easygoing, high maintenance, likable, serious, or charming? I would definitely describe myself as serious. I'm going to go with charming. You are. You are 100% charming. Okay. Question two. What city would you like to live in? And the options are Sydney, Florence, New York, Singapore, San Francisco, or Paris. Um, First of all, I take issue with this because there are no Spanish cities in Barcelona. I'm going to go Florence. I look forward to visiting you there. I am going to choose San Francisco. Close to our episode wine today. I like it. Question number three. What is your go-to comfort food? Oh, we just got photos. All right. Um, Soup, 
It looks like chicken noodle, but use your imagination. Pizza, fried chicken, nachos, spaghetti and meatballs, grilled cheese. I'm going to go with the pizza. I have a guess about yours, but I'll let you choose. Could it be the grilled cheese? Okay, what is your dream vacation? Tulum, Tokyo, Madrid, Bangkok, Santorini, or Reykjavik? Sorry to everyone who lives in Reykjavik if I pronounced that wrong. I don't think we have enough fans from there yet, so they can't be mad. I've been to Santorini, and I would love to go back. Uh, The wine is phenomenal, so that's what I'm going with. Thailand has been on my list of dream spots for a long time, so I'm going to say Bangkok. Very cool. Okay, next question. Pick something sweet. Again, why do I get the picture ones? Okay, chocolate ice cream cone, hot chocolate, chocolate chip cookies. A cr- is that a cronut? It's a don't. I think it, I'm going to say it's a cronut. It looks like a cronut. Crepes, clearly stuffed with Nutella, and some sort of fruit c- crumble. I'm going to say hot chocolate. I am also going to say hot chocolate because it's real good with a little nip of mescal in it. <laughs> Which TV character do you most identify with? Mindy Kaling, Tyrion Lannister, Olivia from Scandal, Serena from Gossip Girl, Jim from The Office, or Don Draper from Mad Men? I am the god of tits and wine. I'll take Tyrion Lannister. I have never actually seen this show, but I'm going with Mindy Kaling. How have you... Wow, I just feel like our audience learned a whole lot about us in this one question. Look, we said this was a learning podcast. All right, let's see. This is a long BuzzFeed quiz. Okay, choose a fruit. You'll like this one. All right, we've got raspberries, peaches, cherries. Looks like a Bing cherry to be precise. Blueberries, pineapple, apples. Oh, I'm 100% going with raspberries. Raspberries all day, every day. This does not surprise me. I will take the blueberries. A match made in heaven. Okay, are you ready for the big reveal? I don't know. I'm a little nervous. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Here we go. The wine that best matches your personality is Merlot. Damn it! I knew I set myself up for failure. I knew it. Hey, hey, this this is your personality, not what you like to drink. But just like the velvety, soft Merlot, you're suave and sensual. If there's one word to describe you, it's passionate. You put your heart and soul into everything you do. You can even be a bit of a romantic, but that's exactly what people love about you. I think I'm going to call you Merlot from now on. I think BuzzFeed is like that Elvis wine and it just... BuzzFeed, have you even met me? Okay, well, Anne, you are... Pinot Noir personified. Yes. Just like Pinot Noir, one of the most approachable wines. So approachable. You're super adaptable and easygoing. Hmm. Interesting. You have lots of different friend groups and are always making the best of whatever situation you're thrown into. All right. Well, there you there you go. We are both mildly disappointed and questioning all of our life choices. You're Think welcome. for yourself. Pinot Noir feels exactly right to me. If you take this quiz, let us know who you are. Uh, Tell us on Instagram. Tell us on Twitter. We would like to know how many varieties of wine BuzzFeed put in this quiz. All right, now on to the real learning. Drea, what are we drinking today? 
So we've got a really unique bottle. This is the Gallivanter. It is a red blend from Donkey and Goat, and it's a 2019. So we're going to get into all the details of this wine in a few here, but I first want to talk about the reason that we picked this one. So Donkey and Goat, they are a urban winery located in Berkeley, California, which is a city that's very near and dear to my heart. And this is the last place that Anne and I drank wine together in the flesh pre-pandemic. So yeah, we decided to celebrate that day. In terms of price point and availability, Donkey and Goat has pretty large variety. Um, They produce between 10 and 12 wines each year, and their bottles range from about $25 to $35. So it's only mildly fancy. Everyone calm down. But the wines are very unique, highly seasonal, highly influenced by their growing processes and where they, they source their grapes from. So they're actually really great values for the bottle. This particular wine has an ABV of about 12%. And so it's it's a little bit of a lighter red. It's definitely, you know, an easy drinking wine. I loved their tasting room that we visited in Oakland. What can you tell me a little bit more about the winemaker? Yeah, so... Um, Donkey and Goat Winery is actually owned and operated by a couple, Jared and Tracy Brandt, and they're located in Berkeley, California. They founded the winery in 2004, so they're you know relatively new on the scene, yet they were still one of the major pioneers of the urban wine industry in Northern California. Their philosophy of winemaking, I think, is really important, especially in terms of ecology and thinking about our carbon footprint and the carbon footprint that the wine industry leaves on the planet. So they are very committed to sustainably farmed vineyards and they source from the Sierra Nevadas, Mendocino and Napa. Their philosophy towards sustainable winemaking really does trickle into every part of their business. And I wanted to share something that Tracy wrote in 2009 about the wines that they produce. She says, we make our wines for the table, not the cocktail glass. We strive to make wine as naturally as possible. We've done so since day one. Of late, natural wine is fashionable, which we do, of course, appreciate. But the reality is we've done this from the start because we feel it makes a superior wine while aligning with our environmental objectives. And I think that that really summarizes what Donkey and Goat is about and some of the features that you're going to see in the wines that they produce. So natural wine, just natural as a term, feels so kind of vague and and mushy almost. Like, what does natural wine mean in the winemaking world? Mm, This is like a whole can of worms. And on today's episode, we will barely scratch the surface of what natural wine is and means. This is definitely a conversation that we'll have to come back to as we progress through more episodes. But I think the first thing to recognize is that just like in the food industry, 
this idea of a natural product is a very popular movement in the contemporary wine world. And it's predicated on this return to ancestral winemaking methods. So those that have little to no chemical intervention, and that covers everything from fertilizers to pesticides to types of soils, all of that sort of stuff. So that's kind of the first blanket ideas. It's this return to ancestral forms of winemaking. When we get down into the nitty gritty of things, though, there are several forms for how we sort of parse out what natural wine means. But before we get into that, I think it's definitely worth noting that people fight about this shit all the time. So um, none of it's set in stone. A lot of it is up for discussion and argument. And so our goal today is really to give you some information that you can then fight about while you drink this bottle of wine. There are three key classifications when we think about natural wine, organic wines, biodynamic wines, and then natural wines. So organic wines are certified wines. They do have a government regulation process, especially in places like the United States and the EU, where the government sets regulations on chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, all the sides in terms of how things can be produced. So it does vary by region. There's no kind of global standard. But the important thing to know is that there are standards. Then we move into biodynamic wines. Biodynamic wines are not government regulated, but they do follow a list of standard production practices that considers the vineyard to be an entire ecosystem. So the philosophy really is that winemaking and wine production is only a small part of what's happening on that landscape at any given time. And so biodynamic winemakers are really attempting to balance the needs of the landscapes with the means of production. And so everything that you get in that bottle of wine is a reflection of that space and of the balance of maintaining that space so that it continues to produce uh, grapes for years to come. I think this concept of biodynamic wines, it it sounds really sexy to me. It sounds kind of mysterious. And I think it fits really well with the, the philosophy that both of us have about drinking wine, which is that it should be a reflection of the place that it comes from. Absolutely. This core philosophy that the vineyard is a living ecosystem is kind of what unites all of them together. And I agree, it it does sound sexy. This is my favorite one by far. And it also seems in some ways the most tangible without all the governmental regulation, right? And then the last one is the all-elusive natural wines. When you slap that natural uh, label on something, you are saying a couple of things. Um, Natural wines are not regulated. Because of that, it makes this idea of natural very ambiguous. So it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean that there are no additives to the wine. You know, a lot of, especially large commercially produced wines do have additives to enhance certain flavors or to mask certain flaws in the wines or in the grapes. So it could mean that there are no additives, it could mean hand-picked, it could mean that they only utilize wild and natural yeast. So the list really goes on and on. And so 
the idea of natural is much harder to kind of pin down with this classification system. So what should we be thinking about when we're drinking a natural wine? So I think the most important thing to remember is that a natural wine is going to be different. And if you were an adventurous drinker or an adventurous eater or just, you know, like putting weird stuff in your mouth, this is going to be great for you. And some of the descriptors that I hear a lot when I'm talking about natural wine or drinking natural wine with friends are, you know, it's got a little bit of funkiness to it. There's a little grittiness to it. Uh, Some people describe like earth or dirt. Uh, Wet rocks is a favorite descriptor of mine. You also get things like herbal or herbaceous, high minerality, juicy, big fruits. And so just like any other wine, there's a huge spectrum of flavor profiles that you're going to get in a natural wine. I think what makes it so attractive is the combination of those flavors and how they play together. The other thing about a natural wine is that these unique flavors are not just from the grapes and the farming practices, but also from the fermentation processes that are used and the materials that people are using for tanks and barrels. So traditionally, wines are fermented in and aged in wood barrels, right? So steel tank usually, and then you've got your oak barrels, usually American or French oak. But in the natural wine world, we see people playing with their materials a lot more. So they may be fermenting and aging in steel tanks. You see more neutral oak so that you're getting less of that woodiness and more of the fruit of the grape. I've seen other woods used. Uh, I was in Morocco and they use cedar wood. I've been in places in Italy where they use olive wood. All of those things are going to change kind of the the flavor and the body of the wine. A lot of places, especially smaller winemakers, are also experimenting with things like concrete, marble, clay, glass, fiberglass. So there's a lot of interesting things happening on the technology side of winemaking when it comes to natural wine. It really helps us connect to the past in an interesting way because of the methodology that's used. And for me, it's like a treasure map of sorts. So much is dependent on the harvest for that year and the conditions. If you're looking for a wine that's like tried and true and consistent, a natural wine probably isn't going to be your go-to. If you're looking for something a little bit more adventurous, these are an absolute must. So going back to our last time at Donkey and Goat, I remember that we were, I think, in your car and we drove up on this this little street sort of in the middle of nowhere, it felt like to me, and pulled up to this kind of nondescript, almost warehouse-like building and got out. And it's like you said, it was kind of like a treasure map. Like we stepped inside into this totally different world of an urban winery. And I know you said earlier that these wines are being grown in Napa and Mendocino. So the grapes are not being grown in an urban space. So what makes an urban winery? Great question. So an urban winery 
is a wine producer that's located in an urban setting. But there's sometimes, you know, a lot of confusion about this concept for exactly the reasons you trace out. Well, we don't have some vines in the parking lot, so where are all these grapes coming from? And typically, urban wineries tend to source grapes from various vineyards. And so this is a case where the producer is not necessarily always the grower. Even in some of your larger wineries, a lot of times they're paying other farms for their grapes to meet the needs of production. And so if you've got a favorite bottle, for example, of Cabernet that you pick up at the grocery store every week, if they're a large producer, chances are they're not growing all of their own grapes. So it's not that uncommon of a practice in any sort of winemaking setting here. But typically, urban wineries will source their grapes from multiple vineyards, but they do the fermentation, the bottling, and the retail of wines at their facility, which is located then in an urban area. You're seeing urban wineries popping up in you know, not just like the Berkeley, Oakland area, but in San Diego, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, New York, Austin. Uh, I even have a friend in Phoenix who went to an urban winery out there. And Berkeley itself has been quite the hub for urban wines for some time. And this really shouldn't surprise anyone. You know, Berkeley's home to a lot of amazing eateries, including the, the famed and revolutionary Chez Panisse, where California cuisine is really born. And so it's really no surprise to me that this funky little East Bay community has become home to some of my favorite wines and is once again really leading this charge in revolutionary practices for food and beverage. And so currently, there are about 10 urban wineries located in Berkeley. They're all pretty close to the marina within a really densely packed, I would say maybe four block radius. Uh, it's a highly industrialized area. They're like exposed train tracks. It's kind of a funky place. I, I think when we went out there, we thought this was going to turn into a murder podcast real quick, but they're all great. Most of them are now open again for tastings with a reservation. So if you're in the area, check them out, see if you want to try some of these goodies. So the wine in my glass is a dark red than the rosé we had last time. What are the grapes in this? This is the fun thing about a red blend. It's always a bit of a surprise. And I, I personally love them. I think blends are great bang for your buck. They're also just super fun to taste and they're really easy to pair. Their blends are those wines that can be really exciting because typically they do change year to year. So for example, the scalp Alavanta Red is a blend and it does change at Donkey and Goat based on availability, based on what sort of grapes were particularly promising that harvest. And I, I don't know if this is their process there, but I've met enough winemakers in my day that with blends, they all kind of start out as experiments. And so, you know, you're pulling from different grape varietals and you're putting some stuff together and you just kind of have to see how it goes. It becomes a little bit of a science experiment. And then the most promising one usually makes it to bottling. So this particular blend, and again, this is the 2019 Gallivanter, is a blend of Merlot, look at that, Grenache, and Movedra. In terms of 
Where these grapes particularly come from, though, that's a little harder to figure out. My best guess is that they're pulling these grapes from all of their wine growing areas. Uh, And as we mentioned earlier, that would be the Sierra Nevadas, Mendocino County, and of course, Napa. So let's talk about the regions that Donkey and Goat is pulling from. Uh, The first is the Sierra Nevada region, and in particular, the Sierra Foothills. This is one of the best kept secrets in winemaking. I love to knock on California wines all day long, but I do really like the stuff that's coming out of this region. So It seems like an odd place to grow vines at first glance, which may be why I like it so much. The landscape has a high elevation. It's very hilly. You get a lot of, as a result, hillside and sloping vineyards, but the soil is what really makes these vineyards. It tends to be iron-rich, red volcanic soil, so you get that nice minerality in a lot of the the wines that are coming out of this area. And it actually has really great and diverse growing conditions. This is also one of the oldest wine-making regions in California. And today there are over 100 wineries in the region, and they grow grapes for producers across the state. You'll sometimes see Sierra Nevada, you'll see Sierra Foothills, El Dorado, is a major area in the foothills. So if you see that on a label, you know that that's where it's coming from. So that's the first sourcing region. The second one is the Mendocino County. And this is one of the leading regions for producing organically grown grapes in the country. A lot of your natural and organic winemakers are at some point sourcing from this region. Uh, Like the Sierra Nevadas, the first vineyards here were established in the 1850s, also as a result of people going up the state on their way to gold country. But what's interesting here is there was already a less formal, less organized wine making population there because of the Spanish descendants who were in the region. And they were some of the leaders in that area who really took winemaking to the next level and realized that they could capitalize on this emergent industry. So today you find a huge variety of vineyards. Um, There are two distinct areas to the region. First is the warmer climate valleys and then the cooler climate coastal vineyards. And the soil in both though tends to be a little bit looser looser than what you see in the Sierra Nevadas and with a little bit more silt and clay. I love it when you talk soil to me. Soil. It's like the best sort of dirty talk I can imagine. So tell me about this last region. I heard, I've heard it's a little place called Napa. Just a little place, really insignificant. No one talks about it. I mean, listen, this this needs to be its own show. It's probably going to be a bunch of shows. But if you drink wine and you have a pulse, I'm sure you've heard of Napa Valley. It is the premier and the largest region, wine growing region in the United States. And it is comprised of 16 AVAs or American Viticulture Areas. An AVA is important because it is a designated wine growing region that is regulated. So think about like champagne. Champagne can only be called Champagne if it's from a particular region. Similar idea here. It is regulated and all the wines produced there must adhere to certain standards to protect the Appalachian. Not just a place, also a name. (laughs) It's a whole brand. It's a whole brand. 
but yeah, so that's uh, the backstory on this bottle and some tidbits that might enhance your tasting of it. But I think we're about to ready to get into it. Yeah. So I know you taught us in the last episode that you start with the color. So what are you seeing in your glass right now? So this bottle is really cool. Um, first, we talked about you know wanting to get a little chill on it. And when you pull the cork out, you probably notice that there's some crystallization and some sediment there. Don't freak out. Your wine hasn't gone bad. You're not going to die. Everything's cool, cool, cool. This is an unfiltered wine. So a lot of um, natural wines that you come across or wines that use ancestral methods, like a Putnap, for example, they're going to have sediment and they're going to have a little bit of cloudiness. When we look at this glass, it is a deep ruby color. It's It doesn't have the full purple, you know, those deep berry notes of a Merlot. It's got more of a ruby garnet flair to it, but it also has a little bit of a cloudiness. It doesn't have the same clarity. And if I'm looking down into my glass, I can even see a little like pool of sediment there. Okay. And again, that's coming from the residual sugars from the fermentation process that haven't been filtered out of the wine. Okay. So the next thing we're going to do is let's, let's take a big whiff. What's coming at you? Alcohol. You do not smell alcohol. Stop. I it. think I do. That's because you probably drank gin before. The- <laughs> I only wanted to. I don't, um, I don't, I don't know what I, I smell wine, Drea. <laughs> okay. So let's start with fruits. It has kind of that deep berry color. So take a whiff of this. I smell early summer cherries. I get a little bit of that bite of raspberries, that little tartness to it. But I'm also getting some other stuff. And this is where the natural wine and the funk of it gets really exciting to me. I smell things like wet wood. I smell eucalyptus. I smell thyme. I smell a little bit of sage. I'm getting just a hint of like tobacco that's probably coming from the Merlot. It's such a deep, complex aroma that I'm getting. And what's interesting about it is it's pulling me in all these different ways. That's the beauty of a natural wine. It's really, in my mind, the gift that keeps on giving because I feel like every time I take another whiff, that aroma evolves. And as you pour that bottle out, each glass is going to evolve in a different way because you're introducing more oxygen and you're letting it warm up a little bit. So where you start with this wine and where you finish, it's going to be a whole journey. I have a terrible nose as you may have known about me before, but when you said sage, I started to get that. So I almost wonder if it's just like, I don't I don't quite know. I'm not experienced enough in wine yet to be able to distinguish all these things. Well, I think that's the great misnomer, right? Is that you have to be experienced with wine to know about these things. Girl, I know you. I know you like to eat. I know you like to eat good things. And I think what people forget about wine is that it's so referential. It's so closely related to our previous experiences and what we have smelled and what we have tasted before. Like, how would you describe to someone what wet wood smells like? 
who had never smelled it before. And wine tasting is a little bit like that. It wasn't until I started doing some serious tasting while I was traveling that I felt like my palate got a lot better. And it wasn't necessarily because of the sheer amount of wine I was on these trips, but also all the different things I was eating, right? And so you're able to start to pair those those flavors and notice them a little bit more, I think. What you just said about sort of the referential pieces and how influenced the, the wine and the flavor is going to be based on all of your surroundings, it's it's starting to make sense that, oh yeah, what you eat at the same time that you're drinking this wine is going to impact the flavors. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there are some wines where I'll just crack open the bottle and, you know, sip it out on the deck and that's our happy hour. And then there are other wines that I really want to save for a meal and a very particular meal sometimes. All right. Are we ready to put it in our mouths? I think so. I think so. Mm. Mm-hmm. So this time I'm definitely getting some of the berry flavors that you talked about, like the raspberry. And I'm also getting this incredible texture on my tongue. It is, it is doing something wild and weird that uh, the last bottle definitely didn't. What's going on there? Almost like a little, a little uh, prickly, a little. Mm-hmm. There. Yeah, I think that that's part of that unfiltered quality of the wine. There is probably a very, very, very slight carbonic nature to this particular wine. And I also just think it's the the flavor combinations that we're getting here too. It's got a really nice acidity to it, a little bit more on the medium high side, but I like it um, because the acidity for me is picking up like notes of sour cherry in a way that I associate with summertime and being outside, but that I would still like drink this fireside. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. All season wine. (laughs) But I also think that this wine has a really great herbal background to it. Uh, It's got that nice minerality that I really like in a wine. And um, for me, it's a little bit harder to find balance so well in a red. So I like that about this piece as well. Did I just call it piece? Like it was a piece of art hanging on my wall. It's a it's a piece of art that goes in your mouth. The best kind. So let's talk maybe um, pairings a little bit as we're sipping on this. Yeah. What would you pair this with? What would you enjoy with this glass of wine? This wine has like a sharpness or like you said, sort of that mystery and that depth that makes me think of like, Margaret Atwood and some of her, especially some of her shorter works, like the Penelope ad comes to mind, which is the retelling of the Odyssey from the the point of view of Penelope. I could really see settling down for a good evening with that book and this wine. I'm also thinking of uh, Susanna Clark's latest one. um, Piranesi. Piranesi. I think that this would go great with that. I also would love to curl up with a good noir story, either, you know, like watching the Maltese Falcon or reading the novel or the Thin Man, just something that's kind of fun, but still a little mysterious. Speaking of fun, we both read The City of Dreaming books recently, and I actually feel like that would pair really well with this. There's sort of a whimsical quality to it. Maybe that's the carbonic. I could really enjoy that. Plus, the artwork in that book is amazing, and you should all go out and read it. That is our gift to you this episode. I almost want to 
have this with a curry. Yeah. I was thinking of, I was trying to figure out what I would put it with. And I was like, I make this like um, kale and sweet potato and some chilies, some like, there's so much you could do with this. It would be, it would be a great wine um, to pair with some pizza. Mm. Uh, Going down really well with this. I could see this wine pairing really well with dessert and chocolate. Like a really nice dark chocolate would go well with this. I would also do, you know, frankly, um, for the for the carnivores out there, I would do like a pollo asado taco with this. It's got the the earthy undertones to hold up to like that smoky quality. And I think one of the other things that I'm noticing with what we like the foods we've chosen is this is a wine that like it's very good, but it's not fussy. Absolutely. Like it, it's it's approachable. It's fun. And I, I think for me that's one of the things I love the most about this natural wine movement is it really makes winemaking and wine drinking fun because some crazy things are happening within it. I think that this bottle in particular is a great value because it can be used in so many different ways and to pair with so many different um, things and activities and meals. Yeah, I completely agree. What would be a situation that you could see yourself drinking this with? I mean, I know you already said by the fire, but paint a picture. I want to be at an Airbnb in the woods. We have the same picture. In a hot tub. We have exactly the same picture. That's what I want. That's what I want for my life right now. That's what I want for my life next week. That's what I want for my life all summer. That's what I want. How about you? Or or wait, do we have the same dream? Well, we do have the same dream, but I've thought of a second dream. I want to take this wine on a date. It's sexy. It's fun. It's flirty. uh, And it's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's a great point. This would be a great first date wine. What music comes to mind for you? with this wine. I'm really into the Black Pumas right now. Mm. And I was listening to them on my glamorous trip to go pick up my Target curbside order earlier today. And this would be a great wine to listen to that record. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's it's sexy, it's earthy. Um, I would pair maybe some Childish Gambino with this. Mm-hmm. Nat Geo, hear me out is doing a new series. They Well, they have a series called Genius and they've done a couple seasons. They've done Einstein with Jeffrey Rush. They did Picasso with Antonio Banderas and now they're doing Aretha Franklin. And so I kind of want to crack this bottle open when that starts up next week. So I guess it's a really good thing I bought two of these bottles. Yeah, yeah. I could see Aretha with this. Right? Something sultry, something soulful for sure. Mm-hmm. I have been listening to a lot of music that doesn't go with this wine right now. I've been in like a an 80s pop move. But before that, I was in a, a very long Taylor Swift kick. And I actually feel like this wine would also go really well with folklore and evermore. If you're a Swifty out there, this is a wine that could work for you. Yeah, I think we figured it out. If you try this wine and you think of a book, a song, a movie, a situation... We want to hear about it. Tell us on Instagram. Drea is responsible for our Instagram. So it actually gets checked. Two girls and a grape pod. And you can also reach out to us on Twitter at two girls and a grape. That's with the number two. Or you can email us at two girls and a grape pod at gmail.com. 
What are we drinking next time, Drea? We are going to drink a Chocolina, which is a Spanish white from northern Spain. We're working out the details, but here's the thing. Chocolinas are a very distinct wine. Um, they have very similar flavor notes across uh, the the vineyards. And so if you find one or if you know of one, uh, if your local bodega has one, snatch it up and let's go for it. And I am guessing this is definitely coming from the Basque region or thereabouts because Chocolina is not how I would have pronounced that. (laughs) I could be completely wrong. I'm sure someone who is much better at this than us will probably tell us if I am. Um, And I will be humbled and grateful. But yes, it is uh, from that region. And it, there are some of my favorites. This bottle or this varietal in particular is what I refer to fondly as my gateway white and I'm excited to share it so if you think you don't like white wines join us on our next episode and let us prove you wrong thanks so much for being here with us we hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time salud salud